And so this, the, the reality of adultery, the reality of infidelity and the improper expression of sexual desire is very personal. It's personal because we all wrestle with it and it's personal because most of us have probably wrestled through the ramifications of someone close to us being involved in something like this, either harmed by someone else or harming someone else. But this is not a child sermon this morning. And I love having our kids with us. I think that's wonderful. But uh, I, I, can't, I can't afford to pull any punches as we talk about adultery this morning. Jesus didn't. In fact, he deals with this in the most extreme terms. Not explicit terms. Don't, don't be worried. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and if you will stand with me, we'll be reading verses 27 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Please stand with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Please be seated. When I was in youth ministry some years ago, I picked up a youth ministry magazine called Youth Specialties and had an article in it on those who are in the ministry, particularly youth ministry, and the uh, incidents of uh, infidelity amongst them and the incidents of adultery. And this particular article said that 90% of the church workers that they interviewed, that was a small sampling size, certainly wasn't you know, an international study, just simply was 90% of the church workers they interviewed had at least one relationship in which there was a recognized and cultivated area of danger concerning sexual attraction. The way they viewed that relationship was that although they had not done anything uh, physical or overt, that the relationship was in some way not safe. That is, they were on the edge, perhaps, of playing with Uh, inappropriate kinds of sexual attraction. Now, the statistics say that 30 to 60% of all married couples in the United States will indulge indulge or engage in physical infidelity. Between 50% 50 and 80% of men and 30 to 40% of women will struggle with pornography and thus infidelity of heart over the next year. So we understand that sexual infidelity, that the inappropriate expression of sexual desire is rampant in our society. And Probably for each of you, there's been some physical impact of this. It certainly is true and or some personal impact of this, and this is certainly true in my own life. I 
when I was in high school, I had a uh, my, my parents moved to another city while I was finishing up my sophomore year. I stayed there for about half a year, and they joined a, another church, a church that I was not familiar with. When I moved to to join them, I started going to that church, and was again, I wasn't I wasn't, didn't really know much about it. it seemed like a, a growing, thriving church, and the pastor of that church was a tremendous Bible teacher, someone who just taught expositorily, one of the best expository teachers I had heard, certainly up to that point, and maybe have heard in in my lifetime. And yet about three months into my time there, kind of getting exposed to this new church, the pastor came up on a, the teaching pastor came up on a Sunday morning and instead of teaching, he goes, well, the elders have asked me to give you a bit of an announcement. And the announcement is this, that I'll be stepping down. And he went on kind of before he said anything, he's like, you know, and this is my fault. I want you to know it's not my wife's fault. And certainly I'll take the blame for it. And, and even, even I at, at age 16, 17 was, was going, it seems a bit patronizing to me, a bit, bit excusing. But then of course, what he said at the end of that was, and, and I've, I've committed adultery. I have been unfaithful to my wife, and uh, it was with a church secretary for about a year and a half that he'd been doing that, and he stepped down. Well, of course, quite a bombshell to, to me, to my family, but perhaps even more than that, his son uh, was had, just in the three months that I'd been there, had become one of my better friends, and ultimately became my best friend there. He went to high school with me. He was a very engaging young man, and we, we just struck up a friendship. And the devastation of that, of his father's infidelity, of course, the breakup of the family, the, uh, you know, he then, he then married the church secretary, left the church, and yet uh, my friend still continued to come to the church, his son, uh, and, and then trying to, trying to relate to his mom. So I'd be over at his mom's house, and I'd be over at his new mom's house with him. Uh, tremendously difficult. Well, it got even more difficult. I moved away to college. That was my senior year, and I moved away to college. And about three, well, I guess about three months in, into college, I got a call from my dad, which in and of itself was pretty unusual. He rarely called me personally. And uh, so he, he said, are, are you by yourself? I was actually at my brother's house. And he goes, well, that's good, and I want you to sit down. Now, you hear about this stuff in movies. I'm like, I don't need to sit down. I mean, what, what is it that you could bring to me that would, you know? So I, but I did. I went ahead and sat down. He goes, your friend, Elliot, uh, has committed suicide. And, and I'll tell you, I, I've, I've never, I'd never before, I don't know that I'd cried really in my life up to that point. I was 18 years old. I, I bawled for about an hour. I just didn't really know how to deal with, with that. I was thankful for my brother who was there and others. And I think the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life was to go back to that funeral, back to Colorado Springs where I'd been. And to try to figure out with my own emotions and, and just how I was going to respond to walk down and first shake the hand or hold the hand of, of his dad and, and his wife or his new wife and then go right over across the aisle and hold the hand of his, of his biological mother, I couldn't say anything. I just cried most of the time all the way through. Didn't know really what to say. And, and, and clearly, Elliot's choice to commit suicide, it was his own choice. It was sinful before the Lord. No one forced him to do that. And yet I knew the turmoil that was going on in his heart as a result of his dad, who was to be a spiritual example and one who had purported himself to be that and watching him do that and make excuses for it and then end up in this particular situation. Devastating. And obviously devastating far beyond my own personal relationship. And so this, the, the reality of adultery, the reality of infidelity and the improper expression of sexual desire is very personal it's personal because we all wrestle with it, and it's personal because most of us have probably wrestled through the ramifications of someone close to us being involved in something like this, either harmed by someone else or harming someone else. So this is not a child sermon this morning, and I love having our kids with us. I think that's wonderful, but uh, I, I, can't, I can't afford to pull any punches as we talk about adultery this morning. Jesus didn't. In fact, he deals with this in the most extreme terms, not explicit terms, don't, don't be worried, we won't go beyond biblical things, but you're going to have to talk to your kids about this and maybe explain what was going on because you need to hear this. We all do. That's why Jesus brings it up. We live in a world that's awash with sexual sin. Every kind of lust and vice is only a click of the mouse or the swipe of an iPad away from our consumption. 
The fundamental nature of sexual sin and its dominating impact on culture is not, however, anything new. It's been around since man sinned. The availability and deviancy are somewhat modern. The passion is ancient. We're in continual need of the reminder that God created sexual intimacy. It is to be pursued for his glory, but that any deviation from biblical guidelines for sexual for sexuality is an abomination to the Lord. So much so that the most heinous of all sins, worshiping another God in the place of Yahweh, is likened to spiritual adultery. Adultery is the ultimate betrayal, an extreme exercise in the pursuit of our own unbridled passion and the target of some of God's strongest rebukes. In our passage, Jesus takes on the sin of adultery, revealing its true heart, challenging us to do whatever it takes to defeat this devastating sin. So what we'll see is that adultery is driven by idolatrous, selfish sexual desire. It can only be defeated by a renovation of the heart and radical amputation of sinful lust and its causes. Again, adultery is driven by idolatrous, selfish sexual desire. It can only be defeated by a renovation of the heart and radical amputation of sinful lust and its causes. Remember that all of this comes in light of Jesus' exhortations for the people in his kingdom to be sanctified, that they must have a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Drop your eyes down to verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. That began this particular section. After talking about the the blessedness of the kingdom, the hard attitudes necessary to enter into the kingdom and to live in the kingdom, Jesus then moves to to very practical matters of sanctification within the kingdom. How is it that you live in honor of the king? Because that's sanctification. It's not legalistic rules and regulations. It is. There are rules and regulations, but they are done out of love for the king, out of a renovated heart that has been changed and renewed, out of a desire to make the king look great which the scribes and Pharisees had no interest in doing whatsoever. They wanted to make themselves look great, and that is why Jesus is assaulting their understanding of obedience, even to Old Testament commands, because most of the things, nearly all of the things he mentions here, are directly commanded in the Old Testament. And yet he says, you have heard this, but I say this. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's contradicting the Pharisees' understanding and practice of Old Testament law. And so he begins, you have heard that the ancients were told, verse 21, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, verse 22, but I say to you. He's not contradicting that law. That's one of the Ten Commandments. He's simply saying the understanding of the Pharisees and their practice is merely external. They're not dealing with the anger in their hearts and saying, look, I haven't killed anybody. Those are the things we say. You talk to people on the street, I haven't killed anybody. Well, this next one, remember we talked about the need to get to the root of murder, which is to defeat anger. We're equally culpable before God when we're angry or when we murder. The external consequences are not the same. We're not saying that. But our our guiltiness before God is equal. And so we have to deal with the anger that brings murder. And we have to keep that anger at bay. Last week, we talked about being sure that we pursue with primacy and urgency repentance and reconciliation. That was verse 23. If you sinned against someone, you got to go to them because you've engendered or made it easy for them to be angry. You've probably been angry in your sin And you need to go and make sure you reconcile so that anger isn't destructive and doesn't begin to destroy the body of Christ. We have to be be quick to repent and to reconcile. And now he moves simply to another of the dominant sins of our lives and the sins of the day. And it's always been true that anger drives most sin and that sexual passion is rampant in all of society, both men and women. It's not a male sin, as we will see very clearly all right, sexual deviancy and, and inappropriate sexual expression is involved with both men and women. Sometimes it looks a little bit different in each one, but the heart, as we will see, is the same. So he, he moves really from commandment number six of the Ten Commandments to commandment number seven. And he says again, you have heard that it was said. He doesn't say the ancients were told. He just said, you've been taught this. And they had. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And of course, that was true. Exodus 20.14, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number seven. Leviticus 20.10, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall, shall surely be put to death. So these things are clearly commanded in Scripture. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery being, in one sense, very simply, the pursuit of sexual intimacy, sexual uh, uh, and physical intimacy with someone who is not your wife. Putting your desire, and in this case, enacting that desire physically with someone whom you have not married, someone you are not married to. And the, and the Pharisees understood this to be a sin, and yet essentially they limited it again to the external physical acts. So they said, we haven't committed adultery. We are innocent of this sin because we haven't actually had physical sexual intimacy with someone who is not our wife. And yet what Jesus is going to do is unmask their understanding of the reality of sin and that they then could, could felt like they had the right to, they could be lustful in other things, and that they hadn't broken the commandments. And Jesus is saying, no, you totally misunderstand this. The nature is, is of, of sexual deviancy and of, of inappropriate sexual expression begins in the heart. It has to be dealt with there, and you're culpable before a holy God for what you think as well as what you do. Now, there's a couple unique things about this passage. One is that it is unique in calling out men. All right, so it begins with everyone, so that's male and female, but the pronoun used is then male. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman, and, and the, I give the I as woman, with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it, it's beginning with the perspective of the man, which in the ancient world was almost unheard of. It was generally held that married men could have sexual adventures as long as they did not involve a married woman, which would mean violating the rights of her husband. A woman, however, was expected to have no such relations. She should be chaste before marriage and faithful after it. The command that Jesus cites makes no distinction. People of both sexes were to remain faithful. Specifically, he speaks of the man as the adulterer. Now, we already saw that in the Old Testament, both men and women are addressed. But it had become the practice, particularly of the scribes and Pharisees, to address only the women. Who was brought to Jesus caught in adultery? Where was the man? The Pharisees are like, we'll bring the woman. Because that was there in their, in their misunderstanding of maleness and femaleness and of culpability in these things. They excused the man and brought the woman. But here Jesus goes directly at the men. Certainly there's no mistake here. Again, it's not that women don't sin in this way. Certainly they do. And yet he goes after the men as those who often excuse themselves from it. Now, I want to be very clear here, right, that adultery is the sin, not sex. Right? Throughout history, some Christians have reacted to sexual temptations and sins in ways that are unbiblical. Seeing the great power of the sex drive and the great damage its unbridled expression can cause, they have sometimes concluded that sex itself is evil and should be completely condemned and avoided. You see this actually in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, and as we'll see in 1 Timothy. Commonly referred to today as the Victorian view, the philosophy has been prevalent long before the age of Queen Victoria. God created sex, he has, and he gives it a blessing to those who enjoy it within the bounds of marriage. Anyone who promotes abstinence from marriage on the basis that sexual expression is somehow evil is paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4 makes this clear. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and abstaining from certain foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and who know the truth. Sexual intimacy is to be gratefully shared in. 
within the bounds of marriage and the principles of Scripture by those who believe and who know the truth. It's not to be denied or hidden or, or somehow made evil in any way. It is adultery that's the problem. And in fact, the very beauty of the physical relationship is the reason that adultery is such a heinous sin. So we can't ignore one and, and think that somehow we'll avoid the other. We can't call one somehow subtle and dark and evil, you know, physical intimacy, something we just got to do. It has to be done in marriage. It's for procreation. And that, that's all that it's for. That is absolutely untrue. And so we will take a look at the idea of what adultery, the physical act first, is. Adultery is violation of God's design of men and women, as it involves a man or woman seeking to be sexually fulfilled outside of marriage, it undermines the very way in which men and women were created. And of course, this sin, like the sin of, of murder, which fundamentally misunderstands that God, or that man has been created in the image of God, that he's valuable because he has that image, and so therefore people murder one another, well, adultery is the same. We have been designed in the image of God, designed male and female, to find this intimacy within the bonds of marriage and only there, and when we misunderstand that, that God has designed us, that God has in fact designed maleness and femaleness, it's not some accident of nature or of evolution, when we misunderstand that, then of course we get involved in adultery. Of course we misunderstand these things. But it is always to our detriment, because whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, you cannot undo your maleness or your femaleness. It's impossible. You can, you can be transgender, you can, you can have homosexual relationships, but it will not change who you essentially are. It is not merely a physical characteristic. It is bound up within your inner man. And so adultery is directly related to our maleness and femaleness. Men and women were designed for sexual intimacy, but only within the boundaries of a covenant relationship. The act of physical intimacy is bound together with the cultivation of relational intimacy between a man and a woman in inseparable ways. When they commit to coming together for life, separating out from their parents and establishing their own household, then they are to be one flesh physically, then and only then, within the bounds of the overall commitment to one another. Genesis 2, 24 says it this way. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a pretty bold statement. And the whole idea of their physicality and their physical oneness is bound up in, at, at that point in their, in their one flesh relationship, and it, it was absolutely pure. And it, it didn't bother them at all. Well, it's only when sin comes in and taints the, the understanding of how we relate to one another, including the physical act, that these things become something that, that are misused. And the physical, physical intimacy becomes a, really a, a means of rebellion against God who created us to be physically intimate. Proverbs 6.32 says this, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. Sure, he's, he's disobeying scripture, but he's lacking sense. Why? Because he who would destroy himself does it. There is harm done to the inner man when you engage in sexual intimacy outside of the bounds of marriage. And that cannot be undone. You can't unthink it away. You can't pretend that because you don't believe in God that adultery won't harm you. It will because it's how you were built and you violate that, it has a true inner man effect, not only the external problems that come from adultery, but also the internal nature of your intimacy with God and your intimacy with others. Because adultery is not only a violation of God's design of man and woman. And by the way, uh, we're going to be delving not so much into the, again, the specifics of, of these things, but, but the general principles in, our, in, in youth coming up in a month or two where we go through our biblical manhood and womanhood series. 
the whole series on what it means to be male, what it means to be female, how you establish relationships. So you might make sure your kids know that. And if you want to come join us for a a portion of that time, it'd be good because I'm only going to have a a short amount of time to do it here. We're going to take this week and maybe next week and the week after that, because all of this is bound up. The understanding of this sin is bound up in much more fundamental principles. Well, secondly, the physical act of adultery is a violation of the marriage covenant. To be intimate with any person other than your spouse is a violation of the commitment made in marriage to be one flesh. This is a commitment made before a holy God and in communion with the church. It's not just a personal commitment. You see, God takes these commitments very seriously, not just between the married couple and himself, but on behalf of the individuals, one towards the other. God takes up the case of one in marriage who is violated through adultery. God bears their case. God takes their the, 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 the difficulty that you have brought to them and brings back the discipline upon the one who commits this act. Hebrews 13.4 is very clear. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornication essentially being that physical acts or, or sexual acts involved before marriage by those who are unmarried, and then adulterers, uh, inappropriate sexual intimacy between those uh, who are married with someone else that they are not married to. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So adultery is a violation of the marriage covenant itself, a covenant which is before a holy God. He is the one who established marriage and is a covenant made to our spouse. Three, a violation of the relationship, and perhaps most fundamentally, well, all of these are fundamental, but it's a violation, adultery is a violation of the relationship of Christ and the church. Not just the picture of it, it is a violation of that, but it is an actual violation of the relationship as we will see from scriptural passages. The intimacy and roles exercised by a man and a woman in marriage are meant to be a picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. This picture is marred by adultery. Indeed, the intimacy of the church and Christ is harmed in an actual way, by the damage this sin causes to the individual and to the assembly of believers. If you think I'm making too big a point of this, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, we covered this in detail. We did a men's conference and a women's conference on on sexual purity. So if you want to go back and get some of those messages, you can, because I, I can't explain in detail this passage this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul dealing with the rampant sexual immorality in Corinth. I mean, you, you think we're a sexually immoral society, and we are. In Corinth, you, you would have a, a thousand female prostitutes coming down into the city at night to engage in prostitution, a, a, a kind of spiritual worship. You see, they misunderstood the nature of intimacy, and, and they viewed the physical intimacy itself as an act, a, a holy act of worship before God. As opposed to picturing that and paving the way for intimacy, they they mistook the act itself for a kind of worship that was supposed to go on before the gods. They again, they got a piece of it right, but misunderstood fundamentally what it's about. Anyway, you could there was both male and female prostitutes. You could go at any time into the temple and have this for free, essentially. Well, First Corinthians six, as Paul tries to deal with these things, he says this: Do you not know, verse fifteen, that your bodies are members of Christ? You individually and corporately. Shall I take them away, away the members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Speaking of the one flesh union. For he says, the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis chapter 2. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. 
It's not conjoining the two, understanding, saying that physical intimacy is the same as spiritual intimacy. It is saying that they're related together and our ability to be spiritually intimate is related to the nature of our physical intimacy with one another. They come from the same source, essentially. They come from the inner man. And if you harm your, through physical immorality, if you harm that ability to be intimate, you also harm your relationship with Christ. Because he says this, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. He's not saying that every other sin is external. He's simply saying in a unique way, sexual sin harms the intimacy that we are called to share with one another and with Christ. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know, and he goes on to make it clear, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? This doesn't have anything to do with food. It has everything to do with the nature of intimacy and that we don't violate that intimacy by becoming one flesh with someone who's not our wife. My prostitute or some other things. I told you this would be an adult sermon. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to keep it with, you know, I'm just going to go where scripture goes. Because these things are real and this has to be dealt with understanding the nature of these things because this is where we go wrong. And this is why sexual sin is just, is, is, is rampant in our churches as well as in society as a whole. Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Now, that's certainly true spiritually and emotionally, but directly physically as well. But then he says, this mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The nature of what marriage is and what you experience in marriage is both a picture of and, and related to the intimacy that we have with Christ. To violate one another to violate other believers and unbelievers in this way is to violate the heart of God. And so Jesus takes on this sin. Again, every sin in some way does that. It would seem that adultery, that sexual sin, does it in a unique way. And I'm not making that up. That's exactly what the scripture said. Every other sin is outside the body. This one deals directly with intimacy, which is what we were created for. And so something to be taken incredibly seriously. So that, that guys, that's the physical act of adultery. Of course, it's always bound up with the adultery that goes on in the heart. So Jesus takes it, of course, back to where it all comes from. The physical act is prompted by what? What goes on in the heart. So he's saying, you can't just say, well, I haven't done that physical act. See, I'm okay. I haven't ruined my intimacy. I haven't harmed it. No, the bottom line is what goes on in the heart is what begins the, the path towards the physical act and, and brings equal culpability. Again, not equal consequence, to commit adultery in the heart is not the same as committing it physically. And so you never make that kind of excuse. Just as with anger, it's like, well, okay, I got angry, so I might as well kill somebody. No. Well, I've had lusts in my heart, so I might as well commit adultery. Absolutely not. The consequences are different. But the culpability before a holy God is the same. And always we're working uh, the sins backwards. We, so we're not, we're not impacting other people with them directly. We're moving it back, as it were, trying to deal with it in our minds. And ever increasingly, when it comes into our mind, as we'll see, taking our thoughts captive immediately, and of course, never letting it work its way out to physical expression, but never excusing it in our hearts if it doesn't get out to physical expression. So Jesus says, but I say to you. So, so they knew that adultery was wrong, the physical act. See, what you're forgetting is adultery comes from the lustfulness of your heart. And that is, that is evil in the sight of a holy God, equally as evil in its, in its culpability. You have equally violated the law of God when you've done this in your heart. I say to you, and again, the you here, as I mentioned last week, he keeps it singular. I say to you, no, no, you individually, you personally. It's true for us corporately, but you individually, every person in this room, man, woman, child, Jesus says, I say to you. 
No one can escape this command. No one can escape the nature of this. And what does he say? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what does this mean? Does it mean if I just see a woman and there's any kind of arousal or delight there that I've, I've committed adultery? It doesn't mean that. It does mean that when I, when I look upon a woman speaking from the man's perspective, which this verse does, and I then make a decision that I'm going to dwell on that and consider how my pleasure will be, how I can receive pleasure from that woman in a sexual way, then I have committed adultery with her in my heart. He says, you've already done it. As that lustful thought goes forward, you've already made the decision that this is what you would do if you could, and this is the pleasure that you desire to have. So it is an idolatrous sexual desire that is being spoken of here, not any sexual desire, as we will see. Idolatrous, that is, I'm going to sin to get it. I know that's not my wife. I know that's not my husband, but I would desire pleasure with that person. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to pursue that in my mind, even if it's not pursued in the actions. Everyone, there's no one accepted here. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your past has been like, what you've been exposed to before. Everyone who does this, who who lusts for a woman in his heart, or lusts for a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart, has already. Right now, a couple of things here. All right. Uh, Eric Bomberg says it this way, the present tense participle refers to one who continues to look rather than just casting a passing glance. That in either case, the mere viewing or mental imaging of a body is not the consideration. Instead, Jesus is condemning lustful thoughts and actions, those involving actual desire to have sexual relations with someone other than one's spouse. You have made that decision. This is what I would like to do. This indicates we might call it the second glance, as it were. You guys, a first glance for male or female, is th- those are things that wasn't, that's not the sin. The sin isn't even to have any kind of desire at all because it would be impossible not to. Absolutely, because you were built for that. To somehow think that you could look and not have any desire at all is, is a complete fallacy. It's not possible. In fact, it wouldn't necessarily even be healthy. The issue is how do I deal with that desire once it rises up in my mind? Do I have the second glance? Do I begin to dwell? Do I make a decision in my heart that I'm going to pursue this? To see a woman and then direct lustful desire towards her, which takes an exercise, not just of external external sight, but an internal decision. When I say second glance, I mean second consideration. Whether I can see her again or not, or see him again or not, is not the issue. I'm thinking about it in my mind when they've gone by, when I've seen it, when I'm just thinking about it sitting in my house, or whatever it might be. Additionally, to put yourself in places or bring women or men before your eyes in order to be aroused by them is an equivalent action. Both are premeditated and outside the bonds of marriage. Proverbs 6.25 says it this way, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Very important. Don't, it's not don't acknowledge her beauty in your heart. That'd be foolishness. I mean, you can't look at her and say, well, she's not pretty when she is. Or a man looking or a woman looking at a man say, he's not handsome when he is. Not, it's not supposed to deny that, oh, I can't, I can't think that. No, that's not the issue. To desire that person's beauty. I want that. That's beautiful, and I'll have it. There's the issue. For someone, now listen, for someone who is not your spouse. We'll talk about in a minute how this relates to your spouse. Because, again, the desire itself is not the sin. The idolatrous desire, I'm going to sin to get it outside the bounds of marriage, or even think about it, is the sin. Now, very important for us to understand that if a man looks at his wife or a wife looks at her husband and desires exactly the same thing, that is to receive physical pleasure 
through sexual intimacy. If a man, if a, a, a husband looks at his wife or a wife looks at her husband and desires this, it is right, good, beautiful, and commanded. When he looks outside of his marriage to someone else and desires this, then it is evil. Now, let's be careful here. It's certainly true that the one desiring pleasure through physical intimacy should and must be considering the needs of their spouse, seeking to give as well as receive in the process of intimacy, desiring to please the Lord in their thinking and actions. This is exactly why the Lord has designed this pleasure to be received within the security of a loving, lifelong commitment. But those truths do not fundamentally change the goodness and holiness of desire for sexual pleasure in itself. This would solve a ton of problems in marriages. It is not a weird thing for a man to desire sexual pleasure. It is not a weird thing for a woman to desire this either. It is how God designed you, and it is one of the reasons that marriage was instituted, not simply to do the act, but to find the pleasure. Because the Bible says this all over the place. And so I can only begin to, to hit a few of the passages, and we'll talk a little bit more about it when, in the coming week. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.